Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week I'm very pleased to say we have Ricardo Duchesne on the show, and we'll be discussing his new book, The Uniqueness of Western Civilization. It is one of the basic assumptions of the Western human sciences that material conditions are largely responsible for the development, and I mean that in the specific sense of organized movement through time, the development of history. This position is most famously associated with Marx, of course, but it is ubiquitous, I think, in what we might call the the big-picture social sciences. In this book, Ricardo Duchesne confronts that materialism directly and in a very disruptive and interesting way because what he says is that it is not material conditions, in fact, that have been the motor behind development, but it is, in fact, ideas. And uh, he says even more radically that these ideas have been predominantly produced by one world historical culture, and that is the world historical culture that was founded by Indo-Europeans some 6,000 years ago and He says, and with some evidence, he's read everything, that these people were historically distinct and that they had a kind of culture that produced a sort of creativity that led to many of the things that we think of as Western and that have driven much of world history over the past 5,000 years. I'm sure that this book will be controversial. I found it uh, extraordinarily thought-provoking. It truly made me question many of the things that I believed, and and I I hope that it receives a a wide readership. So without further ado, here's the interview. Hi, Ricardo. Hi, Marcia. How are you today? I'm doing good. Good. I'm glad to hear that. Today we're talking to Ricardo Duchesne about his terrific new book, The Uniqueness of Western Civilization. This book, as I was telling Ricardo in the pre-interview, is a monumental achievement. It is obviously the result of many, many years of very deep thought and study. Uh, It is not lightly that one arrives at a conclusion or a set of conclusions like the ones that Ricardo has arrived at. They are, to put it mildly, controversial, I would say. And as someone who has, on occasion, not many occasions, uh, found himself in a situation where he had discovered something that did not conform to the conventional wisdom, uh, I uh, respect Ricardo very much for uh, speaking out about this. Um, You know, the data are what they are, and uh, not as we it might please us to imagine them. And so it takes a brave person, in addition to a great scholar, I think, to forward these arguments that he makes in the book. So I think he deserves our respect, first of all, in that this is an important part of democratic discourse. You know, I think it was John Stuart Mill that said, you have to get all the ideas out there if you're going to find the right ones. Yeah. <laughs> so so kudos to Ricardo. Ricardo, why don't you begin the interview before we talk about the book by telling us a little bit about yourself? 
well, as you can see from the accent, uh, my mother tongue is Spanish. I was born in Puerto Rico, which is a small island in the Caribbean. And I came to Canada in my late teens and completed uh, the last years of high school in Montreal, Canada. And so I completed also my university education in Montreal, uh, except a PhD, which I did in Toronto. And now I'm here in New Brunswick, which is in the Atlantic side of Canada. And so in many ways, uh, I would say I'm a Canadian. I have been living here now for uh, over 30 years or so, I think. And um, that's what my uh, life has been here essentially since uh, the mid uh, or late teens. And so about the book, how I came to write it. Yeah, I was um, going to ask, why don't you tell us the origins of the book? Well, um, it, I had always wanted to do a book on uh, Europe, on, on the West, but I wasn't sure how to approach it. When I did my PhD dissertation, I did it on the famous Marxist debate on the transition to capitalism. They call it the transition from feudalism to capitalism. So that's what I wrote a PhD on. And um, I published some articles from it, but I wasn't really satisfied with uh, what I had done. Uh, one of the reasons was that I was increasingly moving away from uh, Marx's view of history and reading Max Weber and reading some other thinkers like Charles Tilly, Michael Mann, and so on. And I felt that um, the transition, that whole way of approaching Europe was inadequate, incomplete, that it tended to restrict uh, our understanding of Europe in terms of class relationships and uh, to view the state uh, in terms of which class dominated it. And so um, I started reading and reading more and became, if you like, increasingly Weberian. At the same time, I was also um, always uh, taken by Hegel and the philosophy of Hegel, which I studied quite seriously whilst I was doing my PhD. Uh, I, I um, studied with H.S. Harris, who is a, a very renowned authority on Hegel in the English uh, speaking world. And I think that I would say that Hegel too came to play a big role in the way I was thinking about uh, European history. Uh, if I could just very briefly say what was his importance, um, it was that he allowed me to see that Europe was not just about economic development, about technology, about the spread of power around the world, but that there was something related to the development of ideas, um, the way he connected what happened in ancient Greece to what happened in Rome to medieval Europe to early modern Europe all the way to the 19th century, he saw this connection that drew my attention, that this intellectual development was not uh, fortuitous, uh, disconnected, but there was something that uh, was at work here and that to understand Europe, you had to see this 
entire intellectual history. Uh, it wasn't simply a matter of looking at the Renaissance or the Enlightenment. And anyone who reads the book will notice right away that, uh, for me, uh, Europe, the West, can never be reduced to one epoch, one phenomenon, uh, be it the Reformation or the Industrial Revolution, but it is that sequence, that connection between major events and intellectual developments. So I would say that this is the way in which Hegel began to influence my thinking. Uh, but it took me a long time to really uh, think how I would write a book on Western civilization. And I think one of the missing elements was that I couldn't comprehend what started this. Uh, there was no answer in Hegel, or at least at that time I couldn't find an answer that he would give me that was satisfactory as to how this dialectic uh, uh, of the mind evolved in Western Europe. And about five years ago, uh, I would say that Nietzsche began to influence me. I began to see him possibly a thinker that kind of saw that behind intellectual uh, movements uh, behind ideas that these subterranean, irrational, passionate forces. And there is something of this in Hegel, as you can see from the book, but uh, with Nietzsche I got a sense that he was the one thinker who best articulated what I now call the aristocratic character of Western civilization. And so what I did next was to historicize Nietzsche, uh, to try and find this aristocratic element. I mean, I see that aristocratic uh, mentality in Nietzsche, but I don't see the sociology. I don't see the his history. He does go back to the pre-Socratics, and he does give us many insights on the pre-Socratics, but um, it was only when I began to think about Indo-Europeans and the possibility that uh, this group that scholars generally were not too keen to write about or speak about, which is why uh, practically most of the books on Indo-Europeans are in the linguistic section and they're not in the prehistory section. Um, so uh, I started then about four or five years ago thinking about the Indo-Europeans and, um, and from there it was like, yes, uh, this is the, if you like, the starting point of the West. It became more and more obvious to me. And this is what I try to do uh, in one of the chapters there, or the last two chapters. I concentrate on that. So when that came together, that, that last piece, that is the Indo-Europeans, I felt comfortable uh, to start seriously uh, thinking about writing this book. Mm -hmm. So that's how I would say I, mm -hmm. it came I together. I, I want to direct the discussion uh, initially toward two things. One is the book doesn't actually begin with the Indo-Europeans, as you just pointed out. Yeah. It begins with the political context uh, within which, I guess, world history and the West's place in it uh, now resides. Um, and it is, a pol it, is a, it is both a scholarly and a political context which the findings of your book quite disagree with. Yeah. Yes. And so I wondered if you could talk a little bit about what has happened to the 19th century notion that the West, or particularly Western Europe, was really quite different than the rest of the world. 
Yes, uh, you're right to make reference to the first chapter, which is, I think, possibly the longest uh, chapter, and it is an effort to trace uh, the ideological roots of what I call multicultural world history and a movement away from the idea that the West was a unique uh, civilization. Uh, in some ways, this was also what drove me to write this book. I wasn't aware of it, but around the late 1990s and early 2000, 2001, uh, I started realizing that uh, people had, by and large, with the academic world, uh, put out or seriously uh, uh, challenged the old Eurocentric model, which I took for granted even in my dissertation. The, the Marxist debate on the origins of capitalism is in many ways a Eurocentric model. It says that something in Europe was different, and that was the fact that capitalism emerged there in Europe first. And I took it for granted that Europe was different and so on. And the same thing when I moved into um, Bavarian scholarship. But I started realizing by the um, uh, late 1990s that um, a new group had emerged, which had seriously challenged this. And I call them the multicultural or revisionist historians. And so um, in a series of articles that preceded, preceded this book, I took on their work, the work of uh, Kenneth Pomeranz, Hobson, A.G. Franks, uh, Patrick Manning, and others. And I realized that they were very, very influential, and more than that, that multiculturalism had become uh, almost the official policy across academia, and that the West uh, was being uh, really uh, pushed out and uh, misinterpreted. So one of the things that I did first was to examine this literature, to take it seriously, to look at their evidence months, uh, every day, just looking at every factual statement they made, I uh, decided that it was necessary to refute their arguments, that I, as I you know, did more and more research, I couldn't believe that people were accepting these arguments because however well they were constructed, uh, the evidence really was not there to support their arguments. So yes, in, in, the, in the first chapter, I addressed the rise of multicultural world history, and in subsequent chapters, I go about refuting uh, the arguments of A.G. Frank, Pomenas, and others, mm-hmm. uh, among other things that I do in that first chapter, where I anticipate some of the uh, things I'm going to say later. And another thing I do as well is that I also observe that this uh, phenomenon of multiculturalism had deep roots in the uh, academic intellectual history of the West. And I trace this back to anthropologists, to the critical uh, school of uh, Adorno and Horkheimer and others. Um, I look into a whole range of other but you might say fads, like, well, it's no longer, it's not really a fad. It's, it's actually a very influential movement. Uh, and I mean feminism, um, anthropological relativism, postmodernism, and I could see all the connections there. And so this is one of the things I also address in the first chapter, how all of these things came together uh, and 
could be viewed as an assault on the identity of Western civilization. Mm-hmm. I see. Um, I, I want to ask the following question or make the following clarification, just in fairness to you and the people who will read the book. The, the points that you make are really two. One is that this historiography has a political context. That is, it is associated with... <clears throat> a party or a set of ideas that were seeking power and gained power. But even more than that, I think, and importantly for the listeners of the show, you say that, uh, I guess what I would call the people who claimed the West um, early on was not very different. And you mentioned Pomerantz and, and a bunch of other folks are simply wrong on the facts that they yeah. have that empirically, you know, as historians, regardless of our political stripe, that they are simply wrong about this. Could you talk a little bit about what they say and why they're wrong? Well, um, you're right. I mean, I felt that I didn't want to challenge them strictly from an ideological perspective. And also, I didn't want to reiterate what had been said before they came along. Uh, Pomeranz takes on Eric Young's famous book, uh, The European Miracle. He uses that book as a model of what the Eurocentric consensus is. And I challenge that as well. I say that you cannot pick one book and say this is the model, uh, if only because uh, there have there are many historians on Europe, on the Renaissance, the Reformation, the Enlightenment that are, in my view, part of that model as mm-hmm. well. But in any case, he uses uh, uh, Eric Jones' book and tries to refute it. And Pomeranz is quite effective, and this is one reason he became um, famous after he wrote his book, The Great Divergence, in the year 2000. Um, and challenging him uh, took me a long time. I had to go through all the claims that he made, and I had to find um, other sources that I felt he did not consult, that uh, questioned his arguments. And I would say that really when it all comes down to it, the basic difference is that I think that by the 1700s, England in particular, but some other uh, regions in Europe as well, is showing clear signs that it is moving towards a post-Marthusian industrial society. Whereas Pomeranz, A.G. Frank, including Jack Goldstone, and there are slight differences between them, they argue that it is only after the 1750s and perhaps as late as 1820, 1830s, that we can see definite signs that Europe is breaking away from the Malthusian past. Mm-hmm. So they argue that Europe, up until then, was moving along the same economic trajectory as many other regions in Asia uh, were. And they do bring effective arguments to show that there were similar trajectories in these two areas of the world. So what I try to do, and this is what I spend most of my uh, empirical effort, is to show that England, Europe, 
was clearly moving away from a Malthusian world. And when we say Malthusian, we mean a world in which uh, the pre-industrial economy would reach limits to growth uh, because uh, output could not outpace the growth of population. And there would be uh, declining returns in productivity and so on. So uh, this gets into a, a lot of details about agricultural productivity, labor productivity, innovations, and so on. But as you add all these things up, it seems to me that England is moving away in the 1700s. It is doing so at at an accelerating pace by the third quarter of the 18th century and uh, clearly so by the 19th century. Now, the next thing that I do, in this is in chapter two and three, is that I also show that this um, movement away from had precedence in the past, that it is very difficult to relink um, the scientific revolution and what Joel Mokir calls the industrial enlightenment. The industrial enlightenment is a term that Joel Mokir uses to link the industrial revolution of the 19th century with the scientific revolution of roughly the 17th century. And um, what it means essentially is that Europeans are in using some of these uh, um, ideas, these ideas uh, on mechanical motion and so on, to think of new ways to uh, create instruments, um, to uh, find new sources of energy and so on, and that they're doing this before the uh, 1700s. Uh, now, when you look at the economic indicators, the total output in I don't know, the economy in general, did it really increase right away? Well, no, it didn't. Uh, it, it was a long, drawn-out movement. And it's only by the 19th century that you see a sort of uh, uh, a number of indicators that are up to a decisive divergence from the rest of the world. Uh, you see a few of these in the 1700s, and you may not see any of these uh, before the 1700s. Uh, but you do see many things. You see uh, the exploration of the world, uh, navigation, and you can use other indicators such as how many European ships navigated to Asia, uh, uh, at what rate were they increasing in the number of trips they took to Asia, and you look at the 1500s, 1600s, 1700s, and you see an acceleration in the number of uh, um, ships that are uh, coming from Europe to the other areas of the world. So this is sort of the kind of thing I do to counter Pomeranz. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Let's move uh, to what I think is the next step in your argument against the revisionists uh, or the multiculturalists, or I'm not quite sure what to call them. I don't want to call them names or anything like that. Many of them are great scholars, and in fairness to them and in fairness to you, you do acknowledge that. You acknowledge their contributions to this. So this is, a, I think, a pretty friendly scholarly debate. Uh, yes. You, you say that they are wrong that uh, Europe was not or did not show signs of being quite different as early as 1700, that, that you believe they, that, that it did and that they believe that it didn't, but they are wrong. And then you begin tracing the origins of this. And, and I think really this gets to the nub of your what I think is really quite radical argument, and that is that 
Uh, what is behind this obvious divergence in your mind in the West is in fact uh, a set of ideas uh, and a way of being rather than material, well, I guess what we might generally call material forces. Yeah, I, I, I do that. There's a series of steps. The first one is that I meet them in their own terrain, the, the revisionists. I look at the economics mm -hmm. of uh, Europe's difference, and I show that just looking at it in economic terms, there, there is no question, as I just said, that by the 1700s, Europe is on a different path. Then after that, I not only connect that economic divergence to the scientific revolution and certain other uh, aspects of uh, European history in the modern, early modern era, but I also start arguing that the Industrial Revolution should not be the focal point around which we start distinguishing Europe from the rest of the world, mm -hmm. that we should consider other developments. And for example, I will say that the scientific revolution, taken by itself without having to connect it to the Industrial Revolution, is a, diver a divergence. There is no scientific revolution elsewhere in the world. It is a whole new way of looking at the cosmos, uh, of looking at the laws of nature and so on. So we cannot just look at Galileo, Newton, and a, a large number of other individuals that participated in this uh, series of uh, uh, modern ways of thinking about nature and just judge these in terms of whether they contributed to the Industrial Revolution, but we have to judge them in their own terms and think of it as a whole new way of thinking about the universe. And so I do this with the Reformation, I do this with the Renaissance, uh, I look at the printing revolution, uh, I look at the paper revolution of the uh, uh, medieval era, uh, I trace that paper revolution uh, using um, a major work uh, by, what is his name here, Harold Berman, Law and Revolution. Legal history, yeah. Yeah, yeah so um, uh, he connects that paper revolution to the rise of the modern state, modern law, the separation of church and state. Mm -hmm. So uh, I open up the whole debate, and having opened up the whole debate, having looked at what Rome did that was also very important, the invention of, uh, of law, to use a very general expression, uh, then what Greece did, um, then it becomes a big, big question. And from that way of thinking, I start asking, well, how did all these things happen? Why did Europe experience all these discontinuities? And why were they so persistent mm -hmm. happening throughout history? Um, because, I mean, if you read the history of Europe and not just economics, politics, or even just science, but read the history of literature, of poetry, of architecture, of uh, philosophy. You have to read the history of philosophy. Uh, um, you know, a work like uh, Bertrand Russell's The History of Western Philosophy, to me, is just as important as any economic history of Europe. Uh, from that work, you will learn a lot about a culture, a civilization that uh, produces this sequence of thinkers, um, uh, one after the other, each saying something different from what the one said before, 
Uh, and depending on who you read, some will say, well, Leibniz was so revolutionary. He introduced a whole new way of thinking in terms of nomads. Uh, then comes Spinoza or around the same time. And then you have Kant, and he is the one who really invented um, the, uh, uh, the notion of a moral individual agent. And then the Hegelians will say, well, no, Hegel is uh, uh, just as revolutionary. And then you go backwards to Luther, and you can go within literature itself. There are many um, literary movements. Just looking at the history of England, uh, you'll have, uh, uh, you know, volume after volume uh, about the literature of the Victorian age, of the Restoration England, the Middle Ages, and within each of these periods, there are uh, different uh, writers, and they are also themselves quite original and unique. Uh, with music, it's the same. Uh, in fact, when it comes to classical music, that's a phenomenon that you only see in Europe. There is no classical music elsewhere in the world. And you can say, well, okay, but, you know, everybody has their own differences and they have their own music. But uh, even if you accept that and you look at the history of classical music in Europe, well, again, it is quite um, innovative. It is quite creative. Not always, not in every epoch, but generally it has that pattern of persisting creativity. Mm -hmm. uh, 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 some centuries show a lot more of it, like the 18th, 19th century, uh, some show less, um, but you can open a book on the history of Western music and what strikes the reader, if you're thinking of what makes the West different, is this ongoing history. It has a history. Uh, uh, there is a literary history. There is a history of poetry, and I don't find that in other areas of the world, uh, not as much, at least. Mm -hmm. uh, if I could uh, say that minimal statement, uh, that you don't find as much in all other areas of the world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I wanted to ask a, a question before we move on to the your explanation of this continuous creativity, uh, which in itself is, is radical and, and I think people will find fascinating, and that is that one of the things that you say about modern historical and I guess also sociological and political scientific scholarship is that it is really very materialist in its orientation. That uh, it, I, I almost want to say, and these are not your words, that many of these people are crypto-Marxists and they don't even know it. Oh, yes, that yeah. they think of they think of humans as very reactive. That the only yeah. time a human will do something is when it is forced to do it by material circumstances. That there is yeah. no creative spark. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, that's one of the other things I do in the first chapter. Uh, that I noted that for all the differences that you may find between Jared Diamond and. Uh, Michael Mann and even people who, that one calls the variants, uh, and some of the uh, people who argue against the revisionists, people like Eric Jones, uh, Pomeranz, and all of them, including uh, the um, anthropologists that I mentioned and many postmodernists, there is a strong tendency to view human beings as reactive creatures. And, and more so now than ever, um, we 
or the history of humans is fundamentally shaped by external forces. And someone like Diamond will say geographic forces, someone else will say biology, uh, someone else will say um, economic structure of the world system, and they debate each other. But by and large, they don't want to uh, really focus on uh, individuals themselves. And they do occasionally here and there and acknowledge it. That's not really their preoccupation. And especially when they're thinking of big long-term transformations, they think, well, those things, those big things cannot have been brought about by individuals. And one of the things I do in the book is that I go way back to, let's say, the origins of agriculture. And I argue that uh, one of the main agents, uh, the persona that was quite critical in bringing about uh, uh, agriculture or farming were the uh, these so-called aggrandizers, these individuals who uh, wanted more, that wanted to gain more prestige within the village, um, that wanted more attention uh, on themselves. And uh, this is an important agent, and they're active, uh, they are energetic, um, and they may have attributes that we dislike, like greediness and self-interest. Uh, yes, so you're right, there is that in um, in the book, I do this. Um, and I also argue uh, there that these individuals uh, are more noticeable in um, European history, and I trace that back to the aristocratic culture of Indo-Europeans, uh, individuals who are trying to find new ways, struggling to uh, make a name, uh, to think in a different way. Uh, you go back to ancient Greece and you will see the pre-Socratics. Sales will say it is water, Anaximanes will say it is uh, some other element, um, well, be it earth, and somebody else comes along and says, no, it is air, and then Empedocles comes and says, no, it is all those four together. And then Heraclitus says it's becoming, Parmenides says it is being. And it's quite interesting how they are, uh, you know, uh, arguing with each other. Uh, uh, and as they're doing that, they're, you know, offering us with new ways of thinking. And in, in my view, really developing our ability to understand things. Mm -hmm. uh, because one doesn't have to be a weak historian or one doesn't have to think that uh, development is natural and it is bound to happen to um, realize that there is here in the history of the West uh, a, a, some kind of sequence, some kind of dialogue that is going on that when Aquinas comes along he's not just putting forth a view um, that's one more and you can take it or leave it, uh, depending on what your standpoint is, but rather he's thinking through prior thinkers. He's thinking through Aristoteles and uh, trying to absorb the significance of Christianity and to make sense of it. So then Aquinas uh, can be seen in light of what preceded him. And then people who come later can also be seen in that light. Like if the uh, nominalists reject the um, universe, 
salaries or the people who believe in universal, um, they reject them, but in a state of dialogue with those people that preceded them. And then they in turn have an influence on what happens later. And so um, this is something that I uh, assimilate or learn from uh, Hegel because this is how he views the history of um, the, he calls it the human mind. But one of the arguments I make in that chapter on Hegel is that uh, we, we should think of Hegel's phenomenology of the spirit as being a book on the phenomenology of Western spirit, because essentially that's what it is. You cannot write a phenomenology of any other culture. Now, Hegelians today uh, have become so multicultural themselves that, oh, they want to talk about the phenomenology of um, other cultures like Iran and so on, but no one has written it, and no one will, because you can't do it, because you have to have that developmental pattern, mm -hmm. that energy and dialectic has to be there mm -hmm. uh, for one to write such a phenomenology. Mm -hmm. I, I have to say that, um, well, let, let me ask you a question. Uh, you, you may not be prepared for it, but it, it strikes me that it is a great irony that we, and I think I would include Canada here, uh, we here in the United States and Canada and the Western world in general live in a culture that worships creativity. We yeah. love creativity. We, 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 the, the way that we teach our kids. I mean, I've studied in, I've lived in other countries where they do not teach children to be creative. We, we actively, and I have children myself, actively teach them to do new things, things that other people did not do. And yeah. we, we highly prize that. Yet uh, our entire explanation of how we got to this point seems to be materialist. That yeah. is that it had nothing to do with creativity, that it was forced on us in some way. Yeah. How do you explain it, it, that exactly? I, it's, a, you, it's a long, long um, – it will require a long <laughs> explanation and you will still not be able to fully answer it. And this is what we'll – we can talk about that later, but what I will try to do in the next book. And I think it's something that itself emerged out of the West, because we have to understand that multiculturalism is a Western creation. This obsession with diversity, this uh, ongoing effort to downplay, to minimize, to neglect Western uh, uh, achievements is, is itself a Western phenomenon. Mm -hmm. So it came out of the West. And um, I say that an element here is uh, that we became increasingly uncomfortable with the notion that our culture, the Western culture, could have been so much more creative than others, that that idea went against notions of egalitarianism, of democracy. Uh, it also went against, uh, you know, welcome ideas about uh, showing understanding and appreciation for other cultures, which itself is a Western phenomenon. Anthropology was created by Westerners themselves. Uh, the story of the history of other cultures is itself a Western phenomenon. Um, so it's, it is as if we don't want to acknowledge and admit something that we did because we think it is unfair, it is egoistical, uh, uh, we tend to have a short memory historically, we sometimes think that imperialism was a European creation, that racism was created by Europeans, um, and that uh, we forget therefore the way all the societies uh, also participated in empire creation, although mind you, in the book I do say that Westerners uh, were all have exhibited a more expansionary 
temperament mm-hmm. uh, throughout history. They have been more aggressive than other peoples, and that's part of individualism. And that, in, that same brings me to the next point, which is that, and this is something Nietzsche saw, uh, there is a dark side to creativity. There is a dark side to individualism. And it is that it doesn't come in a state of harmony and uh, balance, but it presupposes imbalances and it seeks to create tension and the element of strife there, uh, of of moving against something, Mm -hmm. of challenging it and bringing something else. Uh, Schumpeter, when he spoke about um, capitalism, he came up with this idea of creative destruction. Uh, well, that is it, itself, in my view, a continuation of that temperament that you that I trace back to the Indo-Europeans. Um, this early 19th century entrepreneur and the Robert Barons in the United States were of that type, immensely creative, ambitious individuals, and we feel comfortable with them. Mm-hmm. Um, here in Canada, we had someone like Conrad Black who exhibited certain tendencies that were too um, self-absorbed. Uh, their mannerisms upset us. They seem too arrogant, uh, the way they walk and handle themselves. And so, um, and they, people like that sometimes will do things that get them into trouble uh, because they may have too much energy. Um, they cannot be controlled by all these rules and regulations that modern liberal societies have created and all the bureaucracies continuously telling you you got to fill this and fill that to do the next thing and the next thing. So they lo- we lock them up. <laughs> so, um, you know, you could see it that way. I, I mean, I see this everywhere. I see it in motorcycle gangs, the fact that West have these uh, 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 health angels and then other gangs and they want to do their own thing uh, uh, and there's an element of revaluousness there um, and they, they conflict with each other a lot. Um, so I say that makes us uncomfortable. We, we academics live in a very sort of serene, calm, not always, but there is an element of serenity for one. Our incomes are assured. Uh, <laughs> we we get tenure, so we start projecting that onto history, and we want to history to be that way. Yeah, I, I'm laughing, but you know, there's something to that. I, I yeah, there's something to. I won't I won't wax autobiographical here, but there really is something to that. The, well, yeah. One, there's an easy Nietzschean interpretation of this uh, this conflict in Western civilization between. Um, uh, incredible creativity and the desire to tamp it down. And that is that um, the Western society is Christian predominantly yes. and that Christianity is the, it is the religion of slaves. Yeah. That's, and Asia says that, um, um, I mean, I don't, like I, I raise that question uh, when Nietzsche says that with Socrates and after and Euripides, um, and what he called the Alexandrian civilization of the Hellenistic era, uh, he sees a, a watering down of the creative energy in the Greek world. Uh, he doesn't quite explain how is it that Rome then rises up and so on. But in any case, in Christianity, he really sees an, a, a rebellion, a revolt 
by the slaves against aristocratic uh, individuals. Mm -hmm. But I think that um, uh, Christianity started to accommodate itself to that uh, creativity. It began to appreciate it. Um, uh, and not only that, we also see new infusions of pagan aristocratic um, bands coming into Europe when Rome uh, starts to decline. These barbarian people filled with energy um, take over. And so it's not as if um, Rome uh, or the West uh, comes to an end with Rome. Uh, many people today, when they talk about Western civilization, they say, well, that we're going to face a situation like Rome, that Rome um, declined and the barbarians, you know, took over. Um, I don't agree with that because I think Rome had already lost its vitality, um, that it was a good thing for uh, the barbarians to come in and that that revitalized the West. And Christianity played a critical role in uh, sublimating some of these uh, pagan impulses and redirecting them into more educational or civilized efforts. Um, you see this in England uh, with Alfred the Great. Uh, you see it with um, uh, Charles the Great, with the Carolingian Empire. To me, these are efforts to, um, uh, you know, subdue to some degree the excesses, the, the, the barbarism of these pagans and make it more civilized, and we then eventually get all this creativity coming out of uh, Christendom with the invention of universities, uh, philosophy, cathedrals, uh, great works uh, uh, that really connect to the scientific revolution, uh, new ideas on, uh, on, on matter and motion come up from Christendom, uh, the rise of towns, and so on. So yes, um, I wouldn't say that Christianity um, uh, brought all that down, as Nietzsche seems to say. Uh, the creativity is still there. Um, I, I think we are now finally really experiencing um, the um, a, a real, uh, you know, if you like, decline uh, that it is this uh, generation more than any other. Spengler was right in the 19th century uh, to see that, it's, that it is there evident in the 19th century with democracy or modern liberalism. It is there and socialism. Mm -hmm. um, but I would say that after the Second World War is when, when it, all the elements that go against Western energy and creativity somehow come together and uh, give us the world we have now. Yeah, no, I, I do find it striking that you know, on the one hand, I will tell my son, you know, to go out there and, and to compete and to do well and to be creative and to really make something of himself. And then I tell him, and by the way, the meek shall inherit the earth. <laughs> I, you know, yeah, I don't, I don't I know. know how to put these things in my mind together, uh, you know. No, I'm the same. You feel guilty. You don't want him to be too aggressive. Right, exactly. uh, you think that might do him harm. Yeah, um, but... Um, uh, you know, I struggle with that. I, I, I have my son, I have him boxing now just yeah. to learn to box. And I think one of the reasons I'm critical of feminism is that I think it is part of this effort to 
um, subdued and downplayed mm -hmm. uh, the male side of Western civilization mm -hmm. because it is as if they feel, well, this is their last obstacle. Mm -hmm. If only we emasculate males, then we'll finally get this harmonious world we want. Mm -hmm. But that there is, gonna, there is a reaction that is growing. Uh, although that's a whole new topic there, but yeah. you you will have noticed that I do bring up the m male component mm -hmm. in the rise of the West. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, yeah. I did I did notice that, yeah. So let's go actually uh, in the closing minutes of the interview to really the empirical nub of the book, and that is that the origins of this continuous creativity that you claim exists uh, can be found actually in the invasion of, uh, of the European continent by uh, a group of people, a kind of mysterious group of people, as you say yourself, called the Indo-Europeans. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Yes. Um, like, I didn't know the Indo-Europeans uh, five years ago. I heard about them and so on, like everybody did. Um, but when you go back to ancient Greece, and you're there in classical Greece, and you look at what people are saying about classical Greece, how did this happened. They call it the Greek miracle. Now, remember what I said earlier, that I had come to the conclusion that it was not just the Renaissance, Industrial Revolution, or the Enlightenment, but it was this sequence of uh, immensely creative epochs in Western history. Now, the first epoch is classical Greece. So it would uh, stand to reason that to go back there to trace the origins is important. So when I study various books as to how it came about that Greece produced this miracle. Um, there were real, really no answers. Many of them were similar to the ones that were being offered for the rise of modern Europe. That is, they argue that uh, Greece was divided into uh, small city-states, uh, that they were very competitive with each other, and that this competition engendered this kind of creativity. Uh, but there are problems here. For one, um, the notion that um, this kind of division by itself will engender philosophical and literary creativity uh, is not one that you can support because you find it in other areas of the earth as well or other areas in, in, in the world. And at other times, like India, you'll find that there were certain uh, uh, divisions between different territories. In China, there was a period, this called the period of the warring states, where there was a lot of competition between different uh, states. Um, and it's also the case that just because there is competition per se, you're not going to get creativity. We're just talking about strife and so on, but that is a major ingredient but one has to understand the nature of that competition. Uh, it isn't just the chaos or the violence that produces uh, creativity. Uh, there has to be a mindset, a psychological disposition. And um, when I started studying this more, I began to think about the people who preceded the uh, classical Greeks. Uh, as you know, there is a dark age there in Greece uh, that, uh, runs from around 1200 to around 800 BC, uh, but before 1200 you have Mycenaean civilization. And when you study the Mycenaeans and you study their culture, it became transparent to me that they were quite aristocratic, quite energetic, they had spread themselves throughout the Mediterranean, 
and that they had what I saw was an aristocratic culture. And by aristocratic culture, I mean that there is an elite that rules the society, even if there is a individual that has uh, more authority and more power, that individual rules uh, together with this other powerful aristocrats. Uh, by aristocratic, I mean an attitude that says that I'm not going to be allowed to be subdued or mistreated uh, as an inferior, uh, and that's something that I observed it happen in other civilizations, um, in um, Chinese, Indian, Aztec, and so on, uh, the aristocracy, uh, even when you call it aristocracy, they didn't have this um, a temperament of rebelliousness and um, aventurism or, or avent of seeking adventure mm -hmm. and challenging things. Um, so, you know, I started really then just reading books on the Indo-Europeans, and um, I felt that there was something there. And I'll, I'll just put it this way. First of all, um, they have a different econom economy. Uh, when you look at farming, farming arrives in Greece around 6,500 B.C., and then by around 5,800, you see herding and farming aging in that area uh, of the Pontic Caspian steppes, and it is from the Pontic Caspian steppes that the Indo-Europeans uh, uh, came. Uh, there is still some debate. Some people think they came around where Armenia is today, but I accept uh, what I think is the stronger consensus, which is that they came from where Ukraine Ukraine is today, or the Pontic Caspian steppes. Then by around 5,200 and 4,800, you see the spread of cattle, farming, sheep, and essentially you see a pastoral herding economy there. So although farming had come into Greece uh, in the 7th millennium, and from there it spread into the Balkans and also westwards into Europe gradually, uh, in the Pontic steppes you see farming coming in, but there it takes on a herding pastoral character. There as well. Essentially, it means that animals play a bigger role there in that area. Mm -hmm. Then the next important phenomenon is that we have an animal there that today we call the horse that was found in the Pontic Caspian steppes. And this animal is domesticated after 4800 BC, thereabouts. And I'm, I'm going quickly over these days because we don't have much time. Yes, then yeah. um, by 42. Uh, 100 BC, uh, Adam, uh, David Anthony um, has made the argument, and others are agreeing, that writing could be detected by 4200 BC, and certainly by 3700 BC. Then you have wheel vehicles by 3500 BC or 3000 BC. Now, if you take this together, uh, the pastoral economy riding of horses and wheel vehicles by 3500 BC, 3000, all these things are put together, um, then you have a whole new economy that is quite mobile. And this uh, economy does start 
moving into the Balkans and uh, westwards into Europe. Uh, uh, initially, there are intrusions, sporadic, uh, but nevertheless, for sure, there were uh, regular interactions. But by 3800 into 3000 BC, uh, you see um, a whole horizon, they call it the Yannaya horizon, between 3300 and 2500 BC of this pastoral economy uh, in um, around the Balkan region, a bit into Central uh, Europe. And then the, later on, you see the colder wear uh, culture, uh, which is, if you like, the pre-Germanic um, uh, culture, and uh, is the ground out of which the Bronze Age Europe comes. And um, these uh, uh, cultures are uh, very dynamic. Uh, they have horses. Uh, they ride them. Um, they cover extensive territories, and eventually, later on, you will see the rise of chariots. Um, the earliest in the steep can be said to have been there before 2000 BCE. Um, uh, and they, there's a lot of debate as to whether the Near East originated them, um, but some people say that the earliest can be seen in the steeps before 2000 BCE, uh, whereas in the Near East, uh, they were unknown before 1800 BCE. Uh, so I tend to agree with those who think that um, it was uh, invented or at least made proper for riding and warfare by people from the state. So when you put this package together, you have a very formidable, expansive uh, a culture. And this is one of the things that I try to do in that chapter, to show this, how they expanded, and to show that continuously when you read the sources, not me, but when you read David Anthony, uh, when you read Mallory, uh, even if they disagree about where they came from and so on, uh, when you read Marie Hakim Vutas, who, uh, is known as a, as a feminist scholar, uh, and she used these, uh, Indo Europeans as warlike pastoral peoples, when you read all of these sources, they all seem to agree that this was a aristocratic culture, very warlike, very mobile, very aggressive. And um, I started asking myself, why do they keep saying aristocratic? And they say the same thing about the Mycenaeans, that they're aristocratic. And they say the same about the Homeric Greeks. Uh, there are aristocrats there. Uh, one of the things about Homer's Iliad is that you can actually identify people by their names, mm -hmm. which is not to be found elsewhere. And it's not just one name, the name of the king. It's the name of many, many individuals. And they have uh, lineages. They have uh, places that they own. They have wives with names and sons with names. So you see this individualization. And uh, if you go earlier back to, you know, 3000 BCE, you already see many aristocratic features. I have a section there, I think I raised about five major points as constituting an aristocratic culture. Uh, having to do with the way they dress, having to do with the way they related to each other when they uh, form warrior bands, that they see themselves as a group of comrades, uh, as um, a war band of uh, men that 
uh, are each seeking some glory and each loyal to the other. And although there is one who pulls together these men together and he's the leader, the other ones are also quite individualistic in, in searching their own glory, in having a reputation and a name. And I connect this then to the heroic literature. It's very interesting that only in Europeans produce a heroic literature. The Iliad is one, but we have others associated with the self, the Germanic peoples. And so I try and look at all these common patterns and um and and I call it for that reason an aristocratic culture. Mm-hmm. It's a long discussion that you cannot sum up quickly. Mm-hmm. Let me let me um, ask you. Uh, we're almost out of time, but I, I really am finding this very interesting. It, it seems to me that your position rests on three three points. That is relative to the contribution of the Indo-Europeans to a unique Western civilization. The first one is that. Uh, there were these Indo-Europeans and that they are of the character you say they were. Let's leave that one aside as we've talked about it a little bit. Um, the, the second is, is that these Indo-Europeans, if they are as you say they are, were in fact different from other contemporaneous or later or earlier, I suppose, um, warrior elites that we find scattered around the globe, that they were truly were had a different character. And then the, the third thing, and I also want you to hear you speak about this just briefly, is that there's a mechanism of transmission of the values, aristocratic values that they held that basically comes down to our day. So I guess the questions yeah. I have are two. One is, were these Indo-Europeans truly unique? And two, is there an identifiable mechanism of transmission across the generations? Yeah, well, one of the most difficult questions is how do I get from a barbaric, militaristic, aristocratic culture to the Greek miracle. How do we make that transition? Mm-hmm. And I spend time handling that, and I get into philosophical discussions. I even talk about the origins of genuine personalities. I even argue that um, that self-consciousness emerged with the uh, Indo-Europeans. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what I mean by that is the ability for us to be able to make distinctions between those things within ourselves that are mental or conscious things and those things that relate to our body, uh, to our appetites. Uh, and uh, by the time you get to Plato, there's a clear tripartite division of the soul. Yeah. If you go back to the, uh, 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 the, even the pre-Socratics and the Homeric characters, for sure, uh, it isn't clear how they distinguish things that we associate with the mind and things we associate with the body. So I do trace that to the Indo-Europeans, and that's a complicated, long discussion that I go through uh, Kojev, and um, uh, using Nietzsche as well, the sublimation of willpower. Um, so, you know, I, I, I would, we would have to have a specific <laughs> questions, and I could go point by yeah. point. I, I'm afraid that if I make a general statement, mm-hmm. it sounds a bit outland, outlandish. Mm-hmm. But I'm, I'm persuaded by the fact that um, there is something about seeking personal renown, about distinguishing oneself as an individual away from a group, away from a collective that is associated with a more intense awareness of oneself and that uh, this intense awareness um, is associated with 
uh, creativity and differentiation. And um, as I mentioned before, you see it in Homer, the fact that he's identifying characters with names, and this is not there in any other culture. Uh, it's not just one king who does everything, who accomplishes everything. Uh, when you read, and I've read quite a few of the announcements, uh, statements that the kings of Mesopotamia made in, uh, throughout their history, the Akkadians, and so on, uh, it's very much focused on one individual doing everything. This is not the case in um, uh, in in the Homeric Greeks, and it is not the case in the Celtic and Germanic and Norwegian myths. Uh, you see a number of characters there with name. Um, and so, you know, I don't want to say that automatically there is going to be a point at which we differentiate the mind and then we become aware of, of reasoning as something that is distinctive to ourselves and that out of that develops philosophy. I don't want to say that that is bound to happen, but I cannot see how you could disconnect the two. Um, but historians are very skeptical of these kinds of arguments, and all I can say is you have to read the book and see what's <laughs> there and make your own judgment about this. Well, I um, hope that a lot of people read the book. Uh, unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it at that because we're out of time. Um, it's been really interesting talking to you. I want to close with our uh, final question. Uh, on new books in history, and that is what? What is your next project? What are you working on now, Ricardo? Well, what I'm going to do next, in in a, I think it's going to be about the decline of the West. To address that question again, uh, and I already started reading, and there's a big debate, as you know, about this. Um, and it also relates to the question you asked earlier: uh, Why do Westerners? know that creativity is good and yet somehow feel uncomfortable with acknowledging their own historical creativity. Mm-hmm. And I think I will try to answer questions like that. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I can't, I can't, actually, I can't wait to read the answer because then I'll know how to raise my son. Yeah. <laughs> so, hard, yeah. I know. so anyway, uh, Ricardo DeShane, thank you very much for being on the show today. I really enjoyed talking to you. All right. Thanks. All right. Bye-bye. Uh, okay. You've been listening to an interview with Ricardo Duchesne about his book, The Uniqueness of Western Civilization. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week.